First reading is from is Isaiah 53. Who has believed what we have heard? And who has the arm of the Lord been revealed to? He grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He didn't have an impressive form or majesty that we should look at him, no appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of suffering who knew what sickness was. He was like someone people turned away from. He was despised and we didn't value him. Yet he himself bore our sicknesses and he carried our pains. But we in turn regarded him stricken, struck down by God and afflicted. But he was pierced because of our transgressions, crushed because of our iniquities. Punishment for our peace was on him and we are healed by his wounds. We all went astray like sheep. We all have turned to our own way, and the Lord has punished him for the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb led to the slaughter, and like a sheep silent before her shearers, he did not open his mouth. He was taken away because of oppression and judgment, and who considered his fate? For he was cut off from the land of the living. He was struck because of my people's rebellion." They made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man at his death, although he had done no violence and had not spoken deceitfully. Yet the Lord was pleased to crush him severely. When you make him a restitution offering, he will see his seed, he will prolong his days, and by his hand the Lord's pleasure will be accomplished. He will see it out of his anguish, and he will be satisfied with his knowledge. My righteous servant will justify many, and he will carry their iniquities." Therefore I will give him the many as a portion, and he will receive the mighty as spoil, because he submitted himself to death and was counted among the rebels. Yet he bore the sin of many rebels, many and interceded for the rebels. The second reading is from Matthew chapter 16, from verse 13. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist, other Elijah, still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But you, he asked them, who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. And Jesus responded, Simon, son of Jonah, you are blessed because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my father in heaven. And I also say to you that you are Peter. And on this rock I will build my church, and the forces of Hades will not overpower it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth is already bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth is already loosed in heaven. And he gave the disciples orders to tell no one that he was the Messiah. From then on, Jesus began to point out to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders, chief priests, and scribes, be killed, and be raised the third day. Then Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Oh no, Lord, this will never happen to you. But he turned and told Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are an offence to me because you're not thinking about God's concerns, but man's. Then Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone wants to come with me, he must deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life because of me will find it. What will it benefit a man if he gains the whole world yet loses his life? Or what will a man give in exchange for his life? For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, 
and then he will reward each according to what he has done. I assure you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Mitch. Let me tell you a story about what happened to me when I was uh, 20 years old. I'd been a Christian for five months. So a new Christian at university in Oxford in the UK, and I plucked up the courage to go to the student uh, Christian Bible study group. Uh, that was a big ask. I was in my uh, end of my second year at university. Here's what happened. I walked in the door. It was a Wednesday night, and uh, the first guy I met was called Michael. Uh, hi, Michael. Hi, Paul. He said, oh, I didn't know you were a Christian. Oh, yeah, I became a Christian five months ago. Then he said to me, oh, what, what church do you go to? Oh, I go to the college chapel, I said. Now, the college chapel, just so you know, was, was an Anglo-Catholic church with hymns and liturgy, and we swung some incense. And then he looked at me and he said, Really? I didn't know there were any Christians that went to College Chapel. Now that hurt. I was shocked. See, as a new believer, for me, church was just people who loved Jesus and people who wanted to know Jesus better. And I didn't have a clue about denominations or style of church. It was just to do with whether you wanted to know Jesus better. I remember going to an evangelical church about a year later, and I loved it. I loved the music, I loved the sermon, I loved the style. But I soon realized that there's no perfect church. Everyone is grumbling about something. Do you ever do that? Do you ever grumble about church? Rachel and I visited a church at the Gold Coast in July, and I have to say, I found myself sort of just criticizing the music was different, the bulletin was different, the kids' talk wasn't great. And, and rather than praising God that here were a bunch of people who loved Jesus and he wanted to love Jesus better, and rather than just praising God that the word of God was being taught, I just grumbled and criticized and complained. I'm sure that you'd never do that. And of course we need to be very discerning. And what, what does a church believe and what do they teach and are they teaching the biblical Jesus, but often we just judge a church on style and not on content. And perhaps we need to go back to basics. What is church? The word church appears for the first time in the New Testament in our reading today in Matthew chapter 16. It's there, Matthew 16, verse 18, when Jesus says, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. That's the first time the word appears in the New Testament it just means an assembly, a, a gathering, a group of people. And at this point in history, there's no buildings, there's no denominations, there's no handbooks, there's no liturgy, there's no songs, there's no bands, there's no organs. Jesus just says, on this rock, I will build my church. So to be part of God's church, to be discerning about which church you join, just need to ask two questions. Here's the first question. Who do you say Jesus is? That's the first and most important question, who is Jesus? When you walk into any church, ask the question, who do these people say that Jesus is? And then look at yourself and say, who do I say Jesus is? 
Verse 30, and Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi. It's a small border town, mix of Jews and Gentiles. And he asked his disciples two questions. They're really the same question. Who do the people say the Son of Man is? Can I suggest that's probably the most important question you'll ever be asked? That is the most important question you'll ever have to answer. Who do you say the Son of Man is? The Son of Man was Jesus' favorite title of himself, used over 80 times in the Gospels. And he looks at his disciples and says, now, what, is the, what is the word on the street about me? What do the, the crowds say about me? And they answered in verse 14, some say John the Baptist, others Elijah, still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. It's not a bad list, is it? There's no losers in that list. They're all spiritual heroes, all great men of God. Now, some people say that Jesus is John the Baptist who's come back from the dead. Other people say he is the great prophet Elijah who was prophesied in Micah chapter 4. Elijah, the prophet of power and miracles who preached against idolatry. Some say he's Jeremiah, that prophet of hope and reform who persevered under suffering, or he's just one of the prophets. And so the disciples say that you know, the crowd are impressed by you, Jesus. They think you're powerful. They think you're a prophet. They think you're a good man. But let me say, being impressed by Jesus and thinking he is powerful or a good man doesn't necessarily mean that you are part of God's church. Who do people say Jesus is? Uh, next Saturday night, we'll be gathering under the bridge to sing carols about the birth of Jesus. But who do those people say Jesus is? You'll have to go around and ask people who do you say Jesus is. Who do, the, who do the Mormons say that Jesus is? Who do people like Mitt Romney or famous Mormons, they claim to follow Jesus, but who is a Jesus that they follow? Do you know? Now, this is the historical teaching about Mormonism. I know they're trying to go mainstream, but this is what they actually claim in their historical teachings. Who is Jesus? Quote, a prophet, a good man who performed many miracles, but there was no virgin birth. He was not fully God. And at the wedding of Cana, it was Jesus' own wedding where he married Martha, Mary, and the other Mary, thus promoting polygamy as the right way for marriage. Is that the biblical Jesus? Who does Mahatma Gandhi say that Jesus is? Quote, the gentle figure of Jesus, so patient, so kind, so loving, so full of forgiveness, that he taught his followers not to retaliate but turn the other cheek. Jesus was the most beautiful example of the perfect man. He was just the perfect man, but he is not God. Who does Oprah Winfrey say that Jesus is? Quote from her own lips, there is no sin and a slain Christ has no meaning. What we need saving from is ourselves. Who do people say Jesus is? You've got to answer that question. Is he just a good man? Is he a powerful man? Is he just a prophet? And Jesus turns to his disciples in verse 15, looks them point blank in the eye and says, what about you? Verse 15, but you, it's an emphatic you, it's a plural you, you disciples, who do you say I am? Isn't that the most important question to answer? Who do you say Jesus is? God is not going to judge you on the basis of what other people say about Jesus, but he will look you in the eye and say, who do you say I am? 
And I love Peter in the Gospels because he is so bold and he often speaks before he thinks and often puts his foot in it. But this time he actually nails it in verse 16. Peter said, you are the Messiah or the Christ is the word, the son of the living God. Jesus, you are the promised king, the one who would rule on David's throne. You are the one who would give sight to the blind and raise the dead. You're the one who will bring justice and peace. You are the the wonderful counselor, prince of peace. You are the, the Christ, God's king. You're the son of the living God. Not just a good man, but you're, you're, you're God himself. And I love the timing of this question. See, Peter doesn't answer that question just after he's walked on water or calmed the storm. Peter doesn't ask and answer that question after he's just seen his mother-in-law healed. It's that calm, considered calculated confession that Jesus is the Christ. And that's a turning point of the gospel and a turning point of of my life and of your life, I hope. That realization, that revelation, that glaringly obvious moment where everything clicks into place and you say, yeah, Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And listen carefully, it's at that point that you're part of God's church. Because you declare with your lips that Jesus is king, he is the Messiah, he is the Christ. And it doesn't really matter whether you're, you're, you're chanting hymns or whether you are doing praise pumps for Jesus. As long as with your lips you're saying, Jesus is king, Jesus is the Christ, Jesus is Lord. And I love verse 17, it's such a humbling verse, isn't it? Jesus said, Simon, son of Jonah, you're blessed. Because flesh and blood didn't reveal this to you, but my Father in heaven. Jesus says, Peter, you only know that I am the Christ because God has chosen to reveal that to you. It's not because you've seen more miracles or heard more sermons, it's that God has opened your eyes. Isn't that humbling? That you can only say Jesus is a Christ because God has chosen to open your eyes and reveal that to you. It's not how many times you've been to church or how many sermons you've heard. It's a revelation, a revelation from God himself. And then Jesus utters these remarkable words, which have caused so much controversy in our church throughout history. I say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. And the forces of Hades will not overpower it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth is already bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth is already loosed in heaven. That verse has caused so much controversy. You are Peter and on this rock I will build my church. And the Roman Catholics have taken that to mean that on you, Peter, I will build my church. And so Peter is kind of the earthly head of the church. And that's how they get their their papal succession. All flooding back to Peter. But my question is, why doesn't Jesus say, you are Peter and on you I will build my church? And why does he change from the masculine rock to the feminine rock in verse 18? I don't think the rock is Peter. I don't think the rock is the actual rock. Surely he's saying, on your confession, Peter, I will build my church. On the confession that Jesus is the Messiah, the Christ, the Son of the living God, that is how God is going to grow his church, by people like Peter, by people like you and me, confessing that Jesus Christ is their Lord and their Saviour. And that helps us answer verse 19, doesn't it? I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. What are the keys that Peter's been given? 
It's just the gospel that Jesus is the Christ. He is the Messiah. And whenever the gospel is preached, God grows his church. See, what is church? It's a gathering of people confessing that Jesus is the Messiah. The king, not on your terms, but on God's terms, which is a crucified king, a suffering king, and yet a risen king. See, in fact, if you're here this morning, you're saying that Jesus is the king, confessing with your lips, you're part of God's church. It doesn't matter how you choose to express that. It will differ. But the important thing is, with your lips, you're saying, Jesus is my king. And that is humbling, isn't it? God's opened your eyes so you can say, Jesus is king. I find it incredibly liberating because God will build his church as long as Jesus is being preached. I get invited to speak at church planting conferences. And the question I get asked more than anything else is, Paul, how do you grow a church? How do you grow a church? And what they're asking for is, you know, give me some systems, give me some structures, give me some processes, give me a handbook on how to grow a church. How do you grow a church? You just preach that Jesus is king. You just preach that Jesus is the Messiah. You preach and you pray. What's the quickest way to destroy a church? What's the quickest way that you can destroy a church? By stop preaching that Jesus is king. By stop preaching that Jesus is the son of God. Or you just preach a kind of a a one-dimensional Jesus. Please look out for that. Churches, all you ever hear is the, the discipline of Jesus and the demands of Jesus and never the grace of Jesus. All you ever hear is the, the tender love of Jesus, but not the tough love of Jesus. But if we're preaching that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, then God will grow his church and the forces of Hades will not ever overcome it. This first question, who do you say Jesus is? Please think about that this week. Who do you say Jesus is? Second question is this, what, what does Jesus require of you? What does Jesus ask of you? See, it's very easy to say Jesus is king. It's easy to say Jesus is my king. It's much harder to let him be king, isn't it? It's easy to say with your lips that Jesus is the Messiah. It is much harder to to let Jesus rule your life. And so Jesus says to his disciples, it's not just about what you say with your lips. It's what you do with your life that matters. And so he turns in verse 24 and says, if anyone wants to come to me, if anyone, it's open to everybody, if anybody wants to come to me, he must. It's not an optional. He must deny himself. He must take up his cross and he must follow me. What does Jesus require of you? Two very simple words. Follow me. That's what Jesus asks of you. If you want to be a disciple, just follow Jesus. Remember the old hymn, I have decided. I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back, no turning back. And those words, following Jesus, they sound quite simple, don't they? Ah, it's easy to follow Jesus. Can I suggest it all depends on the, the Jesus that you're following? I was invited to speak at a, a church weekend away at the Central Coast a few years ago. I didn't have a clue how to get there. 
And one of the church members says, oh, just follow me. You ever done that? Driven in a car behind someone following them? Depends on who you're following, doesn't it? The person I was following, I, I think, had trained as a Formula One racing driver. <laughs> I was going at speeds I never dreamt of. I was clinging onto the steering wheel, just trying, to, just trying to follow them. And I sometimes think that you and I think that following Jesus is a bit like a stroll in the park. A nice, sedate walk in the park, wherever Jesus goes, I'll just, I'll just amble behind him and follow him. And when Jesus says, follow me, he is not saying, I'll take you for a stroll in the park. He's saying, come on, follow me, let's do life together. But hang on tight, because it could be a bumpy road. It could be a bumpy ride. That is following Jesus. Jesus will take you into situations and circumstances and places that you would never choose to go to. You would never go there on your own, but he's taken you there, and so you follow him. And Jesus asks you to give up things that you really don't want to give up and do the hard things you're really scared of doing, but he takes you there, and so you, you follow him. And Jesus asks you to be uncomfortable for him and to trust him in the most difficult situations you could ever face and to depend on him that he will never leave you and never forsake you. And you say, where you go, I will go, because I trust you. And that's what it means to follow Jesus. Look how he describes it, verse 24. You must deny yourself and take up your cross and follow him. Say no to self. Say no to my plans and my positions and my power and my money and my holidays and my success. Take up your cross. Be prepared to suffer for Christ. Put the cross at the center of your life. Deny yourself, take up your cross and follow Jesus. What does Jesus require of you? It's a very simple thing. Just where he goes, you go. You don't take the lead. And expect Jesus to just go and step with your plans. He's in charge, not you. You don't go your own way. And then when life gets tough, you just call out to him thinking he'll just come on your path. Whatever path he's got for your life, you, you follow him. Now here's my challenge. When Jesus says, deny yourself, take up your cross and follow him, he is not just talking about the big decisions in life. He's not just saying, you know, when you have to make that big decision, do I take that job or that job by that house or that house or marry that person or that house, that person, I'll deny myself and take him across and follow Jesus. What Jesus is asking of you, friends, is that you die a thousand deaths every single day. Every minute of every day, every second of every day, you choose to, to act and speak and think in a way that says, I have decided to follow Jesus. That consistent, constant choices that you make, your money, your time, the people, your attitudes, your kids, your marriage, your house, your church, your gifts, I've decided to follow Jesus. There's a famous minister who said that he wakes up every morning and says, good morning, Lord Jesus. What are we going to do together today? That's following Jesus. He never promised you easy life, Lots of comfort, more, pop more popularity, more possessions. It's that roller coaster, life changing, just clinging on to Jesus as we do life together. But it's worth it. 
Verse 25, if you want to save your life, put yourself at the centre, do things your way, you will lose it. But if you lose your life for Christ, you say, I follow Jesus. You'll find life, eternal life. And Jesus says, get, get out your calculator. Weigh up the options, verse 26. What will it benefit a man if he gains the whole world, yet he loses his soul? Look at that verse. What would it benefit a man or a woman if he gained the whole world and yet loses his soul? And Jesus is kind of here today saying, friends, what good will it do you if you become the CEO of the biggest company in Sydney and live in the finest house in Sydney with the most beautiful family and yet forfeit your soul? What good will it do you if you become the the fittest, the fastest, the thinnest, the trendiest, the most popular person in Sydney, yet you forfeit your soul? What good will it do you if you've run every marathon in the world and you've eaten every fine dining restaurant in Sydney, but you forfeited your soul because you didn't follow Jesus as he wanted you to follow him? What good will it do you? And the answer is, no good. Because God isn't into building shopping centers and beach houses and investment portfolios. God is building what? What is God building? His church. Who are his church? People saying with their lips, Jesus is my king. People saying with their lives, I've decided to follow Jesus. That's the mark of a true church. Not just singing about Jesus, not just saying he is the Christ, but making the, the attitude and the radical choices to follow Jesus. You ever heard of a man called Hudson Taylor? He's a man who followed Jesus. Denied himself, took up his cross and followed Jesus. Age of 21, he went to China. Left his medical degree, went to China and preached the gospel. Following Jesus wasn't an easy life for him. His daughter died from water on the brain. His Family were almost killed in a riot. His first wife died in childbirth. His second di wife died of cancer. And yet he kept on following Jesus. Stan and Claire, our mission partners, are taking up their cross and following Jesus to the Middle East. That's not an easy call, is it? But it's not just going to hard countries, my friends. It's people like Dave Freeman who have followed Jesus to Newtown. <laughs> to work in a, a really small church. Hard, lonely work. But he's following Jesus. Not just doing ministry. And I know we hate naming people, but it's people like you know, Russell Naomi DeVries who give up annual leave to go on a mission in Darwin or live in a small house with two kids because they're committed to following Jesus here in Kirby. People like Jeannie Walker at 8am who has just followed Jesus faithfully all her life and made the hard choices to keep following Jesus. They're two great questions, aren't they? Who do you say Jesus is? Is he your king? Is he your Lord? Is he your Christ? What does he require of you? Just follow him. Where he goes, you go. Deny yourself, take up your cross and follow him. Let me pray. Father, thank you for opening 
many of our eyes to see that Jesus is the King, the Messiah. Please help us to live with you as King. Help us to follow you wherever you take us. To trust you. To submit to you. And to give you the glory that is due your name. In Jesus' name.